From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When you get cut and bleed, your body normally would form a blood clot to stop the bleeding. To form blood clots, you need cells called platelets and proteins known as clotting factors. People with bleeding disorders either don't have enough platelets or clotting factors or they don't work correctly. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to tell us more about bleeding disorders is Dr. Andrea Dvorak. She's an associate professor of pediatrics at Upstate and the director of the Pediatric Bleeding Disorders Clinic. Thank you for being here, Dr. Dvorak. Thank you. Now, we'll get into the different types and causes of bleeding disorders, but first, can you tell us how common they are? So, honestly, we don't completely know. Um, We are finding more and more of them um, as we look for them, Um, but um, they can be as common as about one in every um, 100,000, one in every 1,000, depending on what numbers you're looking at. Is there a formal definition of what a bleeding disorder is? Um, again, it's not. There are labs that suggest you have a bleeding disorder, and there are certain diagnoses that have very clear criteria. Um, but then there's actually an entire group of patients who seem to bleed easily that may not actually have a formal diagnosis. Interesting. Well, how does a parent, because you deal with pediatric mm-hmm. patients, children, how does a parent typically learn that their child has a bleeding disorder? So typically what happens is they go to their general practitioner, whether it be a family practice or a pediatrician, um, and they, if they have either frequent bruising, frequent nosebleeds, um, some form of frequent type of bleeding symptom, um, their pediatrician will refer to them to us. Um, the other population we see is um, for patients who are either are getting ready to have surgery and have screening tests done, um, and then they're picked up on those screening tests and they're referred to us. Okay. And then are there some people that would make it to the adulthood without knowing that they've got? Definitely. Okay. So, so you don't you don't hear about all of them, but no. All right. Well, you mentioned um, bruising easily mm-hmm. and frequent bleeding. Um, are those the most common signs and symptoms, or are there other things? So it all depends on a, the diagnosis, uh, the specific diagnosis that the patient has. Um, but yes, easy bruising, uh, frequent nosebleeds, or frequent um, like gum bleeding are probably the most common. Um, other kind of symptoms are um, joint recurrent joint bleeds, or um, post-surgical bleeding would okay. be the other common one. And how worried should a parent be if they notice that they've got a toddler who's bruising? Easily. Honestly, most toddlers who are bruising easily are do not have a bleeding disorder. Um, toddlers, because they're learning to walk and learning to move around, they bump into things. It's very common for them to get bruises in abnormal places. Um, so it's more we look at the whole picture um, and not just the, okay, yeah, you get bruises easier. Okay. So maybe it's something to mention at a checkup, but it's not an urgent phone call. Exactly. Or okay. Gotcha. Now, why are bleeding disorders um, dangerous? Because depending on the degree of the disorder itself, um, some patients can actually have spontaneous bleeds, so bleeds that don't require trauma. Or in other situations um, with trauma, if it's head trauma or abdominal trauma, they can have a bleed that can actually cause other complications and be life-threatening. Okay, so it does have to be known about and treated. It is definitely something that um, is better to be known about. 
So let's talk about the different types of bleeding disorders and how they're different. From- so in pediatrics, we vary a little bit from the adults because um, in the adults, there are more of what we call the acquired bleeding disorders. In pediatrics, they tend to be more um, inheritable bleeding disorders. Um, and so those types are is if we look at how the blood clots, um, we have 13 different uh, clotting factors that have to come together in the right order in order to form the blood clot. And so if you have a low level, Level of any one of those clotting factors, you have you can have a bleeding disorder. So the most common of those is called hemophilia, okay. and that's the one that kind of everybody has heard about. Um, and that's either factor eight deficiency or factor nine deficiency. Um, but technically, you can have a deficiency of any of the thirteen factors, um, though the rest of them are, tend to be a lot rarer. The other type that we see more, even more commonly is von Willebrand's um, disease. And von Willebrand's is actually a protein that our body produces that helps deliver clotting factors to the clot. And so if you don't have the right uh, amount or if you don't have access to the von Willebrand's uh, factor in the body, then you are going to bleed um, easier than someone who does has normal levels. So, and von Willebrand's is by far the most common type that we see. It's estimated to be in about uh, 1% of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, though, again, a lot of these patients will go undiagnosed because their symptoms are very mild. Um, and so they're just never brought to light. Okay. Well, you said that these are inherited. Mm-hmm. So um, does that mean the parent also has so in a lot of situations yes if we go backwards we the family member some family members already know they have these disorders um and so the children are picked up just because of the family history um but quite often we may diagnose the child and then listening to the as we gather our history about the parent as well oh yeah they have similar symptoms they also have bleeding symptoms and we have actually gone back and diagnosed the parent after the fact so they didn't know they had it before exactly so and then there's also anywhere up to a quarter of patients maybe new mutations and so it may not be that a parent actually has the um, diagnosis and we may be making the first diagnosis in that child. So these are genetic mm-hmm. in origins. There's not something that, that causes. Not in the most common. There are, Occasionally there are medications that can interfere. There are some other things, but for the most common ones that we see in pediatrics, they're all genetic um, and they're related to the specific chromosomes. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Andrea Dvorak. She's an associate professor of pediatrics and the director of the Pediatric Bleeding Disorders Clinic at Upstate. And before we go into bleeding disorders more, can I ask your advice for stopping a nosebleed? (laughs) Yes. Because that's something that a lot of people will face. Yes, definitely. And it's something that just because you get a nosebleed does not mean you have a bleeding disorder. So to make that point very clear. Um, But our advice for stopping a nosebleed, the first thing is that you want to pinch the nose um, right below the bridge of the nose. um, And that you actually want to lean forward. Um, When we were younger, we were always taught to lean backwards. But then you end up swallowing the blood and it doesn't stop bleeding. So instead, if you lean forward, it actually helps the clot to form in the nose um, and 
prevent the ongoing bleeding. The next thing is you really have to pinch the nose for quite some time. Um, for patients without bleeding complications, we recommend anywhere from five to 10 minutes. And you really should so be that watching can be a, a long clock. Time. Yes. Yeah. You should be watching a clock, watching a watch because it's much longer than you really feel like it should be. Um, for pa- my patients who actually have bleeding disorders, we recommend up to 15 to 20 minutes to hold the nose. So wow. it can be significant. Um, other tricks that you can use, um, a cool cloth on the back of the neck will actually help um, clot the nose. And um, there are other, if you have recurrent problems with nosebleeds, keeping the nose moist, especially um, during the winters when you're inside with the dry heat. Um, so using like a nasal saline or something to moisten the nose is the best technique. Okay. Well, good. Good advice. Well, in terms of getting back to bleeding or disorders, um, are these things that children outgrow? Um, very rarely do they outgrow it. Um, occasionally we know specifically with von Willebrand's disease that because of the way testing is done, um, sometimes the levels will actually change as the patient grows up. Um, but outside of that, someone who truly has a bleeding disorder is not going to outgrow it. Well, what sorts of treatments, what do you do for children that have these different disorders? So it's very diagnosis specific um, for the most common, so von Willebrand's and for hemophilia, we actually have recombinant factor products that we can give them. So we can replace the products that they're missing. Um, and so when we do that, we actually make these children have normal levels. And so the, they are cleared to do all of their activities and really interact with everyone. There's also other medications that we can use to help with specific type of bleeding with mucosal bleeding or nose bleeding. Um, and finally, we do a lot of just symptomatic care. Um, we treat, uh, teach a lot about, as we were talking about with the nosebleeds, about symptomatic control, um, but also about prevention, about being mindful, using a helmet when you ride your bike, which everyone should, um, but it's even more important in my patients with bleeding disorders. Um, but And doing, making sure that if they're going to do an activity that they're at risk for, that they really um, do it as safe as possible. So are there restrictions for kids? for some patients? We really try hard to not restrict the patients. Um, unfortunately, there are some of the bleeding disorders that I can't give preventative medicine to, and we can only treat after the fact when they have a bleed. And for unfortunately, for that small population, we really do have to restrict them. We don't allow them to play a lot of contact sports. Um, we have to be more mindful of it. Um, but for the more the larger group of the patients who either have very mild disorders or have um, um, hemophilia, where we can actually provide them with factor prior to um, activities, we allow them to play sports. Um, I have a child with severe hemophilia who plays football, um, and he does it safely. Um, and that's the key is working with the family to make sure that it's done in a safe uh, fashion. Neat. Well, if a person is referred to you because their primary care doctor suspects they may have a bleeding disorder, can you walk us through what that first appointment is like? So typically it's going to um, be either with myself or there's seven other uh, pediatric physicians in our office. Um, so it'll be with one of the eight of us. We sit down, we take a good history, and the history is actually the most important part. So not only the child's history of bleeding, but also the family history of bleeding. So that helps us to determine really what is the likelihood of someone 
having a bleeding disorder. Um, and then we look at if any labs have been completed, because sometimes they come in with labs already done, or if they have not. Um, and that helps us to kind of guide. Um, almost always that first visit will be associated with a blood draw um, so that we can do the blood evaluation to see if there's an underlying bleeding history. And then if all of the testing is negative and the history doesn't um, is not super consistent with a bleeding disorder, then we send them back to their pediatrician's office. If we actually diagnose a bleeding disorder, then those patients actually get um, referred into the actual bleeding clinic so that um, we do teaching visits with them and then we see them annually after that. Are you able to tell in that first visit? Can you diagnose? I mean, is the blood work quick, quick enough to, to know right so, away? So um, most of the blood work we will have back within a few days. So our lab here is wonderful, and actually most a lot of the information we can have back within 24 hours. Um, a couple of the tests take a little bit longer. Occasionally the patients have to come back for additional testing, um, but typically um, for most patients within a week we can give them um, tell them whether or not they actually have a bleeding disorder or not. Are these uh, ever emergency referrals where they're admitted to the hospital quickly? And yes, um, if it is a patient who is bleeding. Um, so especially in the post-surgical bleeding set, uh, setting is the more common. Occasionally if a trauma, uh, trauma-induced bleeding where they may not, nobody's previously diagnosed the child as having a problem, they come in with the bleeding symptoms and then we make the diagnosis after the fact. Um, but definitely, we don't see um, emergent bleeding very often, um, but it's definitely something that we watch for very carefully. So the majority are um, chronic, it sounds like, chronic conditions. Um, are they appointments they have to make every year, every six months, every three months? What? It, again, completely depends on the diagnosis, but for the most part, for a kid who has been diagnosed, the teaching has been completed, and the family has an understanding, we see the kids on an annual basis so that we're touching base if they need their wisdom teeth removed, if they need other procedures done so that we're already mm-hmm. involved with all of those situations, helping to make sure that school isn't having, they're not having any problems with school and either restrictions being put on them or not being put on them, either way. Um, and then... Um, we'll see them as needed if they do need a procedure, if they have a bleed and that type of situation. It sounds like it would be a scary diagnosis to receive. How do you put a child and, and a parent at ease? I think the biggest thing is the fact that we are, our entire clinic is very well educated in this. And so being able to really give them the information um, and then really supporting them and helping them understand that, yes, they have this diagnosis, but there's a lot of things that we can do to normalize the life for the child. That though this is something that won't go away, it's something that our major goal is to that it's not going to run the child's life. Um, and then we actually, one of my, our, um, my parents actually started up a parents group for our kids with chronic bleeding disorders. And so for parents that are interested in that, I refer them um, to that group. And that's been very helpful as well. So the child continues to see you regularly mm-hmm. through childhood. Um, what happens once they're an adult? So it again depends on the diagnosis, but most of the time we will see a child until they're 21, 22, usually around the age that they're graduating from college um, because a lot of times at that point they're moving on to someplace uh, else and then we'll transition them to an adult hematologist. If they're going to stay local, we transition them right into our adult hematology program here and we are working on a transitioning program with their group as well. So 
Very good. Well, thank you so much for sharing this information with us. Thank you very much. My guest has been Dr. Andrea Dvorak. She's director of the Pediatric Bleeding Disorders Clinic at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.